president of the United States issuing, I believe, his first pardon in office. Granting a pardon to Joe Arpaio. Couldn't think of a presidential pardon this controversial. Today, the White House struggled to explain where the president stands on pardons. And the ability to pardon anyone, even himself. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Heather, this summer, President Trump controversially pardoned his political ally, Joe Arpaio, the former anti-immigrant Arizona sheriff who was found guilty of criminal contempt, a hard charge to get hit with because he defied a court order to stop detaining immigrants on suspicion that they were simply in the country illegally without proof of such a crime. Uh, Wow. Here is President Trump from August defending his pardon of Sheriff Arpaio. Sheriff Joe is a patriot. Sheriff Joe loves our country. Sheriff Joe protected our borders. And Sheriff Joe was very unfairly treated by the Obama administration, especially right before an election, an election that he would have won. So, and he was elected many times. So um, I stand by my pardon of Sheriff Joe. A controversial pardon indeed. This week, he granted a much less controversial pardon to turkeys, a tradition that dates back to Harry Truman. Harry started all that, huh? Upon being pardoned, Drumstick and his friend Wishbone will live out their days at Gobbler's Rest. Beautiful place. It's custom built. It's an enclosure on the campus of Virginia Tech. Tremendous school. There they'll join Tater and Tot, the two turkeys pardoned last year by President Obama. So pardons are on our mind. It sounds like a Dolly Parton song, doesn't it? Well, look, let's get uh, one of the leading experts on the protocol and practice of pardoning. Andrew Rudolevich is a professor of government at Bowdoin College and a real pardon maven. Andrew, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So, Andrew, you study uh, this issue of pardons and its long history, and of course it is very long, right back to George Washington. I have a question here specifically about President Trump and something Trump seemed to raise in a dependent clause in one of his long, winding statements, that he might be able to pardon himself. Is that possible? Doesn't that go against the basic uh, original origins of the word pardon? It's a tricky question. The Constitution is silent on that particular question. And so there has been, uh, I think, a new wing of the internet opened up to debate it after President Trump's statement talking about uh, his, quote, complete power to pardon. There were a lot of questions about what that included. Did it include, notably, of course, the power to pardon himself? And well, this is unclear. Uh, Back at the Constitutional Convention, uh, James Wilson, who was a delegate from uh, Pennsylvania, assured his fellow delegates who were nervous that if the president himself were guilty of treason, that he would then use that pardon power to shield his accomplices uh, accomplices, sorry, from uh, punishment. Wilson said, well, no, if the president is himself a party to the guilt, he can be impeached and prosecuted. So much of the Constitution was set up in such a way that it would have checks and balances on every potential misuse of power. And it sounds from what you're saying that there is not, except by implication, any kind of a check or a balance on the, the president's power to pardon. Is that true? Well, the checks are uh, – there are two in that sentence in the Constitution that I mentioned. One is that it's crimes against the United States – so that 
That's only federal crimes. And so the president can't uh, pardon people for state-level crimes, which could become important if you think about some of the arguments around financial misdeeds that might be connected to Russian money laundering or something like that. That could be a set of uh, charges brought at the state level in New York, for example. The other place is that the president can't pardon somebody so that they can't be impeached. Impeachment is a separate political process. It is a pretty serious check on executive officers in the Constitution. Uh, but again, uh, beyond that, it's pretty broad. There aren't – it's one of the few really uncheckable powers you know, by Congress or by the courts. So in that architecture, Andrew, where would a Russia investigation as to the misuse of presidential pardons, I mean, where would it fit? I mean, the Russia investigation uh, deals with a great deal prior to his election during the campaign and seems to be bleeding over a bit to what may indicate obstruction of justice during his presidency. Where would this map out in terms of the power to pardon, as conceived well, by the founders? Right. A couple of things I think are relevant here. Uh, one is that the uh, pardon power is uh, something that can be exercised any time after a crime is committed. The person being pardoned does not have to have yet been prosecuted for that mm -hmm. crime. And mm -hmm. of course, the famous Nixon pardon yep. is a good example of that. And so it is possible that you know, if we presume the crimes have been committed somewhere relating to the you know, investigation undergoing by uh, the special counsel, Mr. Mueller, if we assume that crimes have happened, then in principle, the president could pardon anybody involved in those you know, now or after charges are announced or any time in the future, even after conviction. Uh, the second piece, though, is that the framers were particularly concerned about foreign interference. By, by bags of bags of gold <laughs> from princes yeah. of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a nerve, you know, we're going to wind up with a German prince as, uh, as president or king or, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. He styled himself as, you know, you know, on the throne of America. And that was something they were really concerned about because the United States at that time was far away. It was weak, but it was strategically well-located, had lots of resources. It was an interesting uh, target for right. foreign opportunists. Right. But there is also, the, from the beginning, this fear of foreign intervention for sure. And that goes right up through JFK when people thought he was going to be influenced by the pope. But can't we just establish right here and right now that from the very beginning, the founders if you know their papers, as you and I do, and the way they talked about the strength of an executive and the way they talked about checking a president who became too strong, that mm -hmm. they did not intend for a president to be able to pardon himself. That while we're talking about the legal ease of maybe they screwed up and they didn't put it in quite right or whatever, but do you feel comfortable as I do saying on the principle of it, the founding fathers did not believe that the head of America could flout the law with impunity and then say, oh, never mind, I'm pardoning myself. Huh. Yeah, I think philosophically that's correct. Um, the pardon, I think, generally, as it was put into the Constitution, you know, is a check itself. It's a check against the judiciary, right? It's a check against a, uh, a justice system that gets out of control. Well, uh, look, I should mention that I, like many husbands, uh, uh, well, my wife claims I've been pardoning myself for years. <laughs> um, Heather, Andrew, stand by. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
All right, we're back. We're talking presidential pardons. Sheriff Joe Arpaio wasn't the first controversial presidential pardon. Almost every administration has faced controversy in this arena. Just for a little review of recent history, Barack Obama commuted the sentence of Chelsea Manning, the soldier who leaked classified information to WikiLeaks. George W. Bush commuted the sentence of his aide, Scooter Libby, after he was convicted of perjury. Bill Clinton pardoned Mark Rich on charges of tax evasion. Mark Rich's wife happened to be one of the Clinton's largest Democratic donors. And George H.W. Bush, I think winning a real prize on this one, pardoned six people involved in the Iran-Contra affair, including the Secretary of Defense and National Security Advisor under Ronald Reagan. Of course, mind you, the interesting dilemma here for President George H.W. Bush, he was the vice president at the time, the key thing that he's pardoning people for, including Cap Weinberger, then the Secretary of Defense, was the destruction of notes that both Weinberger had and H.W. had that probably implicated Ronald Reagan. Uh, Now, Weinberger gets taken down on that and ends up uh, being convicted of lying to Congress. He is pardoned for that. But at the time, there was a prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh, who was circling in on H.W. Bush, then president. So this is a moment that actually is pretty close to some of the things we're seeing with this Trump dilemma of prosecution of a sitting president. And this is something that has been a constant in American history. We've had tens of thousands of pardons since George Washington began it by pardoning a couple of guys who got involved in the Whiskey Rebellion. He issued 16 pardons at the end of his term. By the time you get up to Barack Obama, you've got 212 people. Barack Obama also commuted the convictions of a further 1,715 people, Mm -hmm. many of people who were nonviolent drug offenders. And you have presidents like Andrew Johnson who pardoned more than 7,000 people. So there's this constant in American history of these pardons. And Andrew Johnson was 7,000 people involved on the... Who tried to destroy America. On the side of the Confederates during the Civil War, yes? So there's always this controversy at the heart of these pardons. And some of them in our lifetimes have been bigger than others. I suspect that there's one that will spring to your mind on this. Of course. (laughs) I mean, you know, the Gerald Ford pardoning of Richard Nixon. And I have sought such guidance and searched my own conscience with special diligence to determine the right thing for me to do with respect to my predecessor in this place, Richard Nixon, and his loyal wife and family. Theirs is an American tragedy in which we all all have played a part. It could go on and on and on or someone must write the end to it. I have concluded that only I can do that. And if I can, I must. All right, but I, I gotta I gotta ask both of you guys this, and I wanna I wanna hear how you come down on this. Tell me then about Ford's pardon of Nixon. Yeah. Yes or no? And I'm hoping you guys are gonna disagree. <laughs> Andrew, you go first. I say it was a good idea. Oh, boy. I knew it. Go ahead. What do you think, Ron? I'm sorry. Ron's dying on the other side of the table. He's choking to death Let me make this perfectly clear. I think uh, I am with Andrew on this. Oh, no. I'm sorry, Heather. (laughs) Sorry. Look, I mean, look, I, I... 
I contributed to a book called Profiles and Courage for Our Time, where Gerald Ford, it was all the winners of the JFK Library's Profiles and Courage Awards, and the big signature winner was Gerald Ford many years after the pardon. Bob Woodward wrote up a big piece for the book, and, and I think Ford was eloquent in talking about what he did on behalf of the country at that point. Mind you, Ford said rightly, I knew the minute I pardoned Nixon the first month in as I'm president, that there would be no chance I'd be reelected. And he was right about that. It was at the center of what meant he he would cashier his political future as somebody who could be reelected by virtue of that act. And, and the prospect, look, I was no Nixon lover. I mean, you know, I was there, I'm a 14 year old when he sits there, you know, crouched over with that bad posture, you know, uh, you know, I resign the office of president of the United States. We're all watching it together at camp at summer camp. I am you not know, a quitter. I'm not a quitter. I am. I don't know what I am. I'm not a crook either. Not a crook or quitter, but you know, but the prospect of Nixon ending up in a jail cell I, you know, even as a 14-year-old, I'm right. thinking all that right. doesn't work I'm for me. I'm actually okay with the jail cell. You're, okay. you're good okay. with Why don't you think hey, so? Hey, we disagree. Andrew's good <laughs> well, with the jail cell. And I'm, cell. boy, am I going to rake you two over the coals. No, uh, Heather's, right. Heather's, Andrew, why Heather's do you setting, think it was a Heather's setting okay. us up here, Andrew. All right, here comes the softball to you. Uh, no, I think uh, Nixon jail was less the problem than Nixon on trial for a year or a year and a half or two years or three years, right? I think the Our you know, long national nightmare would not have ended as Gerald Well, exactly. And – you know, Ford was nervous about every – all the political oxygen getting sucked out of the rest of his administration at a time, by the way, when the Vietnam War is still going on, at a time when inflation is, you know, really high, when interest rates are really high, stagflation is in full bloom. Um, so, I mean, it is a time when I think there are real things happening and not that Nixon's crimes were not worthy of prosecution. You know, I think it's a, a question of could you have done – anything else while the Nixon saga continued before, and Ford decided not. Yeah, before, well. before you take us both down, Heather, let me ask Andrew whether there <laughs> might be an area where we disagree. Andrew, do you think it was a pre-deal um, fixed in uh, yeah. between Nixon and Ford? You know, Nixon was a great deal maker. A guy yeah, who moved the, chess pieces on four levels at once. You think that was part of the package? You're going to you know, pardon yeah. me if I make you vice president? Well, you know, there were certainly meetings between Al Haig, who wound up as Nixon's chief of staff, yep. and General then Al. Vice President Ford. Um, there's no evidence of it in the end. You know, was it assumed? You know, there's certainly not a, a smoking gun in the sense of a tape or a memo or something like that. Yeah, Heather? All right. So now it's what this is rip. great because I'm the person who's over here always trying to be like sweetness and light. And I got to suggest to <laughs> you guys always, that, if, <laughs> that if Nixon had gone on trial and Nixon had gone to prison as he would have, that we would have been looking at a very different future for the American presidency because presidents would have recognized that they really could go to prison for the crap they were pulling. Yeah. And we would not perhaps have had Iran-Contra. We would not perhaps have had uh, the, you know, the, the war in Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction. And we would not perhaps have Donald Trump, who would have known that he was hanging his you-know-what out to dry if he'd gone there. What? what? So, you know what? I don't know. <laughs> so, but th so if you guys believe that, then what about this? If, if you should be, you well, know, you I don't, don't... I don't accept all of that premise, but go ahead. No? Okay. Go <laughs> hit, me, hit me back on that one. Well, I'm just kidding. I mean, the Iran-Contra is a very different kind of set of crimes, right? Nixon was not impeached and... Uh, you know, they rejected some of the uh, materials on, you know, the expansion of the Vietnam War, for example. You know, the Iran-Contra 
you know, comes out of a very dubious, I agree, but clear idea of the presidential power over foreign affairs. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sympathetic to the uh, uh, rather generous uh, interpretation of statute that the Reagan administration decided upon. My point is, is only that people might have been less willing to skirt the edges of the law if they thought they really could end up in prison. And again, we have this concept that all Americans are equal before the law, and we mm-hmm. seem to believe in practice that presidents are not. Yeah, this is an interesting question because, I mean, Ford, when he pardoned Nixon, right, uh, you know, Ron already alluded to this. His approval rating dropped 20, 25 points. His press secretary resigned in public protests. The Republicans lost 50 seats the next year in the midterm election. Ford loses himself. So, I mean, there was certainly a, you know, was a political cost. But, I mean, I guess the, the question is, was there a sense of accountability with that Nixon suffered and was accountable based on what he had done. And Heather, you say no. No, but let me throw this out to you guys. I don't think there was. And I, but here's, you guys both alluded to the idea that, that there is a point to pardons in keeping the, the country calm. And I, I want to point to my favorite set of pardons, which are my favorite because they are the worst thing that ever happened to America. And that is Andrew Johnson's pardoning of more than 7,000 Confederate leaders who tried to destroy the country. And Andrew Johnson pardons them during the summer of 1865, immediately after the Civil War. And in fact, not all the Confederate generals have laid down their arms when he starts pardoning them. Abraham Lincoln's been assassinated in April of 1865, leaving Andrew Johnson in charge of Reconstruction. So what he does is he gives a blanket proclamation that pardons the little guys as long as they take an oath. And that can be overturned by Congress, and it is. But then he tells that anybody who's worth more than $20,000 that they have to apply to him personally for a pardon. And they do. And by December of 1865, when Congress comes back into session, he has pardoned all but about 1,500 of the Confederate leaders who took the South out of the Union and tried to destroy the country, cost America over 600,000 lives, and over almost $6 billion. And he, what he essentially does is he puts back in charge of the South the same people who were trying to destroy the Union not a year before. If instead he had said to you guys, you are so out of here, or more, prosecuted some of them, I think we'd be in a really different place right now. Well, essentially he's saying uh, pay your indulgences like the church did. If you can pay the fee, you're fine. And only the, the wealthy, powerful landowners of the South or the generals, colonels and whatnot who had that capacity, many of them as well, could. But he just, it's one of those, like, I looked in his eyes and saw he was honest. And of course, these guys, what did these guys go do? They went out and tried to reinstate a form of slavery, something that was as close right. to slavery so, as possible so to get. This is actually... Yeah, what do you, what do you think? And when you hear when you hear of this big pardon, this big mm-hmm. uh, group pardon, yeah, and there have been some, and they've they have been justified generally, you know, along these lines of uh, domestic tranquility. Uh, I have to agree, this is one of the least convincing invocations of that. You know, uh, Johnson politically, uh, not that we want to be too sympathetic, but he comes in and has absolutely no base of political support. Right, there are very few Democrats left in office. They've seceded, they've been booted out. And so as he begins to look ahead, right, to 1868, he suddenly uh, realizes he's got no voters and he begins to sort of put them back in place one at a time. So it is, it's a a pretty horrifically self-interested set of circumstances that he begins to, again, justify on policy grounds. I mean, we might be more sympathetic to some of the broader 
amnesties that were granted earlier and later, you know, when uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, pardons all the people who were caught up in the uh, Sedition Act or later when uh, both Presidents Ford and Carter issued uh, amnesties for Vietnam War draft dodgers. Yeah, well, uh, that, the Civil well, that War, would be, you know, stands very far above either yeah. of those in, in, in number or significance, I think. You're kind of edging so. into what might be called the good pardons <laughs> or the pardons we yeah. look back and say, oh, that, 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 that feels right. Well, wh- right. What are some of your nominations for good pardons? That's an interesting point. I think the uh, – I was actually going to bring up uh, the Obama pardons or commutations in most cases. Um, you mean the, non, the nonviolent drug offenders? Well, you know, they were trying to get legislation through that would have changed the criminal justice system, you know, sort of changed it back from some of the very punitive uh, measures that were put in place in the 80s and 90s. And, uh, and so having failed to get that through Congress, even though there is, I think, probably still uh, more or less a bipartisan consensus um, about its virtues, you know, Obama decided to, to move ahead and uh, I think it was mentioned, you know, 1,700 plus commutations along the lines of people he thought should not have been in prison for that long in the first place. Well, look, that's, um, that is, a, that's my nomination, Andrew, for a good pardon. I spent many years reporting in, in American jails, half full, all but, with nonviolent drug offenders right. based on legislation passed in the early 90s, much of it, three strikes you're out and whatnot. That was a sound and smart pardon that I think helped a lot of people whose lives had been hijacked. You know, here we are talking about best and worst. You know, I think we agree when presidents pardon cronies, cronies that may be involved in some offense in which the president himself may be due for implication. Boy, that sucks. That feels bad and dark. And then you've got this other side where Obama is pardoning nonviolent drug offenders, 1,700 of them. He says, go home. You're free. I'm pardoning you. Well, that seems like an act of mercy. This is an area in which I think as we look at the word pardon, I think we can see reflections of ourselves in a mirror. That's why, uh, that's why this has been a very, very interesting discussion. Heather, thank you. It's always a pleasure, Ron. Andrew, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks so much for letting me hang out. I am Ron Suskind, and this is Freak Out and Carry On. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakoutandcarryon at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.